Hello everyone, this is Shane Petkowitz. Welcome to another episode of Zero. I'm particularly excited about this episode. We have Jean Wiener uh, from Haiti joining us. And it's a bit of a different uh, theme than we've, what we've uh, has previously been explored on, on Zero. Typically, uh, a lot of the discussions um, have focused on how can we focus on closing the loop um, for the use of resources. Once they're extracted, how do we best reuse them and recycle and repurpose them as many times as possible. This episode is going to be a little bit different. It's going to focus more on how do we actually preserve our natural environments and minimize extraction of resources in the first place. And what does that mean from an ecological level? And what does that mean from a social perspective as well? So this is very exciting. It's kind of a new theme and I want to branch out a little bit. So I'm ho hoping you enjoy it. We have a great uh, guest today, Jean Wiener, as I mentioned. Uh, he is, <clears throat> he was born and raised in Haiti, and he has worked on environmental issues in general and on coastal marine issues in Haiti, in particular since 1991. Uh, in 1992, he founded Haiti's first coastal and marine environmental nonprofit, the Fundación por la Protección de la Biodiversidad Marine, or the Foundation for the Protection of Marine Biodiversity, and he still retains this position after almost 30 years of, uh, as an executive, executive director at FOPROBIM. Uh, he specializes in coastal and marine sciences, environmental monitoring and management, community development, uh, and he is actually was responsible, the organization responsible for the first marine protection, uh, federally recognized marine protection area in Haiti. So super exciting. He's won a host of awards uh, for protecting the oceans, anything from the Gold Environmental Prize uh, to the uh, recognized by the Republic of France for a night in the order of agricultural merit. So. Uh, brings a lot of expertise and insights to this work and, and a lot of passion as well. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I certainly did. Um, a lot of mangrove activity, especially these days. Um, the fisheries is also something which is high on our, up there on our radar because of uh, the need for uh, food security, especially in Haiti, for such a poor country. And um, just generally protecting or trying to protect and manage uh, all of the coastal marine resources that we can. Uh, and that, of course, includes uh, making sure that they're in a healthy state, which means, of course, uh, trying to manage the pollution issues. Yeah, and they're all obviously very much interrelated, right? It's these are all system, uh, ecosystems that are involved with kind of the marine biodiversity. And I know that you uh, grew up. You're originally from Haiti. You grew up. You grew up in Haiti, and you're obviously there fairly frequently. What can you just speak of the the origin story? I know it's many many decades ago, but what initially drew you to create uh, Full Problem and, and try to work on this area? Well, for me, um, always having a love for animals, for nature, and anything related. So for me, it was always being in the water at the beach um, as often as possible with my family, with my friends. Although we didn't live particularly close to the beach and in Port-au-Prince, um, there was never really a beach which was, you know, walkable or bikeable or anything. You actually had to drive um, 45 minutes to an hour outside of Port-au-Prince to be able to get to um, anything which would resemble a, a decent or clean beach. Um, and I'll get back into it a little later maybe, but 
part of that, the reason of part of that is because uh, downtown was so polluted already at that point. Uh, anything resembling a beach area in the area which we'd know as Port-au-Prince, um, Carrefour, Marfissin, the areas which had most of the, the population centers at that time, well, still now, were unswimmable, um, no way to walk on the beach down there because there was already tons and tons and tons of pollution uh, down in those areas. Uh, so even at that, even at a young age, realizing that this was happening um, and always being really involved and really interested in coastal marine fisheries and uh, uh, snorkeling as often as I could, being at the beach with my friends as often as we could. Um, for me, going into biology, marine biology was a no-brainer. And from there, um, seeing that no one was doing anything to help protect and manage our coastal marine resources on a Caribbean island was um, something which I didn't quite understand. And so uh, I left. When I left Haiti to go to university in the States, uh, when I returned to Haiti, it was a pretty much a no-brainer that this was something I wanted to do and something which was the perfect niche. And on top of it, no competition since no one else was doing anything in it. So it was it fell into it just like that. And it was a perfect combination of everything. And here we are 30 years later. Amazing. And I can, I'm very fortunate to be very close to the ocean uh, on the coast here in California. And we have some really stunning natural resources and, and ecosystems here. And I always just find it so fascinating, just go to the beach and just even just wading through the tide pools or going for a swim and just seeing all the, the natural wildlife. So I can definitely empathize with the, the draw to, to the ocean that you have. Um, and so it was when you started out was, I, I imagine the mission or the goal of the organization evolved over time. Did it start out with, you wanted to focus on these three areas of mangroves, reefs and fisheries, or was it more focused or? Um, the primary, the vision at first was to just do simple research, um, do research on um, marine, coastal marine ecosystems, fisheries, mangroves, coral reefs, and things like that, uh, hoping to somehow help that move into uh, the protection of, of the resources. But of course, uh, the resources do fine on their own. It's the people who are the issues, uh, who, who create most of the issues. So from there, uh, we started developing and changing more into uh, different things, such as um, trying to do capacity building for local associations, uh, trying to manage the resources a little bit better, uh, continuing our research focus to a certain extent on uh, coral reefs, mangroves, fisheries, and things like that but realizing also that we would not be able to reach our goals either without being able to get the people who are impacting the resources the most and being impacted by the resources the most involved so over the years we've we've uh we've changed the mission if you will to a certain extent um and definitely are doing a lot of social work, if you want to call it that, 
um, working with local fishermen, working with local fish, uh, fishmongers, the uh, women doing the, the marketing of the fish, uh, working with government authorities, um, and just trying to do undertake a holistic approach, really, in trying to ma manage the resources. And I think that that is the only way that any of this could be done. Uh, you can't isolate any particular component necessarily if you want to really try to to have a, a larger and a more significant impact. You really have to be able to tar to target and engage with all the sectors that you're that are that are impacting the resources. That makes a lot of sense. And it also is probably a little bit more difficult than just doing pure research. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, fish don't ha don't have the same issues people do. So yeah, <laughs> and neither does a mangrove tree. So yeah, it's it's uh, all of the dynamics there, the social dynamics, the economics and everything else you have to take into consideration is really, really rough. Um, it's really, you know, it's, it's really something you, but, but it's really something you really have to, to do no matter what, um, if you're going to try to, to help manage and protect the resources. Absolutely. And I think maybe it's worth speaking a little bit more into what those dynamics are and what the relationship is, be taking a holistic view and understanding what the relationship is between the people living in these communities and the ecosystems that they're living in. One thing that I found that was really fascinating is doing a little bit of, of preparation for this is that obviously there, I saw two key challenges. Obviously one is the, the overfishing or the, the fishing of, of um, or the depletion of the fisheries. And then the other one was the use of, of mangroves as a, as a material for the creation of charcoal. And on the one hand, it's obviously we, it, it depletes the natural resources, but on the other hand, the communities obviously need something, you know, they need energy, they need a source of energy and they need a, an income or food source, right? So can you just speak to that balance and how you've tried to, I imagine, broach that or bridge that gap? Um, well, that's, a, that's, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head in terms of what the major issues are there. You're dealing with a country which is in extreme poverty um, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, one of the poorest in the world, and people have to eat, people have to cook their food, uh, people still need to extract resources. I mean, every, everywhere people need to extract, extract resources, but um, in a lot of these situations, alternatives aren't available. So for the mangroves, for example, um, it is causing deforestation and all types of issues. But it's also uh, providing income to a lot of people, to a lot of families. It is providing uh, a needed source of energy for cooking, for, uh, for construction material as well sometimes. Um, not so much anymore because the trees have become so short in many places. Um, it's used in baking, in, in, um, in bakers, for bakers and bakeries, it's uh, used in dry cleaning, uh, which is not necessarily a critically important uh, use, but still, um, it boils down to a, a fuel use, a fuel need. So the need to find an alternative, um, whether it be making, for example, propane 
um, cheaper and more readily available, uh, subsidized potentially, is one of the solutions we hope for. Um, another less, a bit more technical to, to execute, but another potential uh, activity would be what I call charcoal farms, which would be finding uh, land which is perhaps not being used for any particular type of activity and growing fast growing trees that are good for charcoal production and using that wood you know sustainably as you would for for anything for a banana plantation or a wheat field or whatever you'd grow quote unquote grow charcoal um, but um, if you can't provide the needed fuel then the people the, i mean there's no other choice uh, you use the local wood for for charcoal production and that's it you so you have to provide options there for the fisheries um same type of thing um over exploited uh the older fishers talk about when they used to fish uh they used to go out for you know a day or two a week and catch enough to live just fine now they go out for two weeks and can barely find enough fish uh, to survive off of so you have a sector which is um, artisanal which in and in which you have of course again the poverty um, having an impact in which people who are not able to find jobs or not able to um, make another type of living kind of fall into fisheries and it causes all sorts of issues because they don't understand what type of fishing gear to use nor when or how or or anything related uh, so you have you used to have fishing seasons you used to have certain gear used during certain seasons for certain types of fish and you know less people probably most importantly now you have people coming in and using all types of gear all year long and more people um, impacting the fisheries. So um, again, the poverty issue, the lack of options is a major driving force in all of that. And it's really, really on our part, trying to find, trying to educate the fishers, but as we also say, um, education is useless unless you can provide an outlet or an option for its use. Uh, so we go in, we try to educate the fishers on better fishing methods, on trying not to use illegal gear, on trying to use better gear, which will hopefully keep them from using um, damaging methods in which they're catching juvenile fish smaller than my little finger by the, literally by the bucket and the wheelbarrow full. Um, and those same fish, you know, a bucket full of fish that they sell now for maybe um, 200 gourds, which would be two US dollars, uh, if it was left to mature, could sell for 200 US dollars. So the desperation, the, the um, use of incorrect fishing gear, and the poverty, um, everything, it's just a, a perfect storm of, of bad things going on. 
So what we're trying to do is trying to, again, educate the fishermen, provide them with better and um, more legal, more sustainable gear, uh, provide them with other options such as apiculture, and hopefully we're going to be able to get into seaweed uh, culture soon. So being able to provide the options, um, ecotourism, anything in which they either have not had the, uh, the option of seeing or the option of getting engaged in these types of activities. So um, starting them off with the equipment that they need, with the training that they need to be able to, be, to begin to diversify their income streams, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And I hear a lot of it is to achieve this, there's a lot of capacity planning and then creation of other alternatives beyond just what they've tried to, what they're used to. Are you finding that these communities uh, or individuals are, are responsive to this training? Is this something that they're open to or how, how, how's that dynamic been? Yeah, um, they're very open to, to pretty much all of our activities, education and the alternative income generating activities, um, our mangrove restoration activities and all of that. Because first of all, uh, some of the activities like the mangrove restoration provides income also to the local communities. We pay people to help us um, and to help their local communities. And in the process, we kind of grab them at the same time to do the education with them as well. Um, for the fisheries, that's a bit tougher. The fishermen, of course, as they are all over the world, are a separate breed. And it's, it's, uh, it's a bit tougher bringing them on board. Um, there is no support in terms of, of uh, legal support from any type of government agency, really. Um, it's very, well, we can say it's barely starting now. Um, you can have one or two, uh, you know, you can, you can potentially call the police if, you know, call the mayor from a certain place and have him come with the police if you see somebody cutting mangroves, for example, or things like that. But you really need to be able to have um, a legal backdrop in which you know you have game wardens and rangers and people out there uh, monitoring and making sure that that the law is being followed and this is not of course a situation unique to haiti um, even in the us canada or wherever you let anybody go hunting and they know they're not being watched or you know whatever a lot of them are going to do whatever they want so um, it's not a unique situation. It's just that in Haiti, for example, it's probably to an extreme in which there's pretty much no control um, legally in any way, shape or form. So we're also working with the government to try to strengthen their uh, governance and policing capabilities and also trying to, to do some of it on our own. Although we're not a government agency, um, our very presence in the field, you know, can can deter or can educate, and it's a slow, slow, slow process. And as I've told lots of people, also um, in Haiti, environmentally, 
we're not even at the starting line of where we should be in terms of being able to start the race. We're still about 50 meters behind the starting line in terms of having everything in place to be able to actually begin the actual uh, monitoring and protection of the resources. Absolutely, and I think from what I understand, you've definitely helped propel at least Haiti closer to the starting line and you had some very successful uh, accomplishments in, in particular you had the, the creation of a the few i think uh, i mean you obviously know the details but the, the natural preserves or uh, national parks coastal or marine coastal parks i think that was in the last six six five to ten years yep. can you just speak about that process obviously it, it required a lot of engagement with the government um and also i imagine it started to require some resources for you to devote to things like having rangers or wardens or actual protection. Right. Um, yeah, over the past, uh, I think the first marine protected area was designated in 2013, which is pretty incredible, again, for a Caribbean coastal or Caribbean island nation um, that you're just developing your, your first protected areas um, for a country which is also so dependent on fisheries for everything transportation, food, security, et cetera. So yeah, um, we had done an initial survey um, back in about 20, I think it was 20, 2003 or so, um, where we came up with the sites for, I believe it was eight or nine protected areas recommendations. And then it took a while, as you said, it took about 10 years or so, but eventually that was, that was done. Um, we did the initial surveys, made the proposals, kept on pushing for it. But of course, it's the government that takes the final decisions and uh, designates the actual areas which are to be protected. Um, along with that as well, um, we, we uh, developed laws in the Three Bays Marine Protected Area, the first um, communal decrees by five, um, they're like counties. So five counties that are part of the three bays marine protected area in northeastern Haiti uh, came together and signed a decree making small mesh nets illegal, um, being phasing it out over time, uh, because that is without a doubt the most devastating fishing method in Haiti, uh, where it's basically, you know, it's kind of like, although they don't have motors or anything, but it's kind of a, a trawling method where it's just put into the water and just collects absolutely everything, um, including those uh, finger-long juveniles, which I spoke about earlier, by, again, the wheelbarrow full when they come ashore with those nets. So it's devastating to the marine environment. Um, unfortunately, again, because, the, because of a lack of, of law enforcement, um, nothing has really been done with that law. But we do have the law, and without the law, of course, we have nothing to fall back on. So we can't go out and tell the fishermen you're doing something illegal if there's no legal background for it. So even, you know, the first step is to have the law, and then you can try to enforce it. So uh, we've done that. We've helped the government with... Um, laws banning all plastic bags, protecting all of Haiti's mangroves, 
blanket coverage for all of Haiti's mangroves and uh, banning uh, styrofoam food containers, which are a huge, huge issue in Haiti as well. Um, probably the biggest, if not, well, at least the second biggest issue, probably right after uh, plastic drink containers like plastic bottles and plastic uh, bags for water. So yeah, um, we've given our support. We continue to support um, the National Protected Areas Agency. We have a, a co-management co agreement with them for Haiti's marine protected areas to provide them with support, um, educational activities, governance, um, anything we can, as well as sometimes some some materials which they uh, they need to get a hold of, like binoculars and GPS units and things like that. Yeah, that's incredible. The, these are really big accomplishments to be able to have national protections of mangroves, national bans on plastic bags and styrofoams. Yeah. I wish that was something that we could be start doing here. <laughs> uh, how can you just speak? How do you engage with the government? Is that the kind of the local level, the county level? Is it national? Who, who exactly do you work with on, on these on these activities? Um, everyone at the government level from what they call the Azek or the Kazek, who are um, what would be the equivalent like a a county commissioner, I guess, um, in the States. Um, so pretty much the lowest level of, of government, um, all the way up to the ministers. Um, so Minister of Environment, sometimes Minister of Agriculture, Minister of Tourism um, at various points. So everybody along the whole line from ministers, um, director of the National Protected Areas Agency, the technical directors there, um, local local uh, units for these agencies, mayors, and down to the Azeks and the Kazakhs. So pretty much everyone, as far as we can, as long as we can collaborate, we, we try to. Um, a little bit difficult as, at times because there is such instability in the government. Um, you know, sometimes you really put in a lot of effort to to get on the good side, for example, of a minister, and then poof, he's gone. Uh, at one point we went through, I think at our worst point, we went through, I think five ministers in a week. <laughs> so yeah, we've, we've outlasted many, many, many ministers. <laughs> yeah, and that's a testament to, the, to your work that you're doing. Do you find that they, it's hard, obviously, to generalize over so many people with different perspectives and backgrounds. But when you speak with them, is is the value that they see purely in resource conservation or protection, or do they? Is there another motivating factor for them? Is there is there something that's kind of ecotourism, a boost, or uh, some boost to the economy? What, what's the motivation for wanting for them wanting to do this? Yeah. Um, well, they honestly, a lot of them are, you know, just want to see good happen. You know, um, they want to to be able to, you know, if they can't do it, then a lot of them will say, okay, you know, go ahead, you do it, and you know, we'll back you up and, you know, give you the support that you need to to you know, moral support because there's almost nothing else, 
or we'll give you the moral support you need to, to get this or that done. Um, it has changed over the years. At the very beginning, um, there was no doubt that it was okay, you know, you know, I'll sign this letter of support, but you gotta give me something in return. Um, but over the years, oddly enough, it has changed to where um, there is really um, a sense that a lot of the people in at least the higher levels of the government in their interaction with us are interested in, you know, supporting us and supporting our activities and, you know, seeing that it's a good thing that's happening because of course, if they can't do it, then they'll say, you do it. At the very beginning, it was, it was really, really, really a struggle where there was no doubt that if we didn't provide, um, let's call it what it is, a kickback to whoever was in the government, that they would try to stop whatever we were doing. Um, whether it was good for the local people, whether it was helping the environment or whatever, they would, they would have rather seen it fail or stopped than succeed if they weren't going to receive money. It was really to that point. Well, glad to hear that it's evolved a little bit more. And now that they're interested in, in, in doing good beyond just a personal kickback. <laughs> um, so I guess I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. In terms of creating options and you know, creating capacity and light, offering opportunities for livelihoods for people to I guess there's kind of a goal is to try to incentivize people's livelihoods with the protection of a natural e ecosystem, right? So I know you mentioned you people earn a, an income from planting mangroves. Um, you you tried to uh, teach fishermen about how to fish correctly to increase their revenue streams by allowing them to wait for larger fish. Are there other ways that you can kind of align preservation with livelihood that you've considered or are working on? Um, definitely. Um, our apicultural activities, um, raising bees, uh, probably the most direct line, um, makes the most direct line between that. So for us, it's trying to add value to the local mangroves by trying to show the local coastal community stakeholders that mangroves can provide you with income without you having to cut them down. So it's mangrove linked apiculture where we provide training to local communities, provide them with beehives, provide them with um, all of the equipment that they need to get apiculture going, get an apiculture activity going, target placing the beehives close to or within mangrove areas so that the honey is primarily from the mangroves. So the goal there, again, is to show that you can make money from the mangroves without having to cut them down. It can be a continued revenue stream. And the most important part for us is in being able to preserve the mangrove ecosystems, which of course protect the shoreline, which help with fisheries, 
which do all sorts of ecosystem services and 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 things for the for the local communities, be able to protect the mangroves and have these new apiarists hopefully defend the mangroves against the people coming to cut them down to make charcoal or use them for for other types of, of uses. So we're trying to install a de facto uh, mangrove protection unit by developing aquaculture in, in some of these places. That's a great example. And I, the, I can imagine that there are a lot of yeah, incentives for these people to maintain their livelihood by maintaining the mangroves. Um, shifting gears a little bit, mangroves do offer a lot of resources, one of which is, from what I understand, is this, this kind of storm surge protection. And I want to talk a little bit about climate change, because um, I'm sure that's the effects of, of that have started to accelerate in the decades that you've been working uh, on this on these projects. So can you just, is this something that you're seeing on the ground? It, it, how is it making, is it causing much of an impact to the local ecosystems? What are you seeing on from that perspective? Well, for us, the climate change issue is definitely fairly serious because our office is located at zero feet above sea level. <laughs> so um, for example, we were almost flooded the other day when, when there was a, a really high tide mixed with a, an offshore storm and the entire um, low-lying areas of Caracol, which is where we have our office, was pretty much flooded by about a foot or two of water. So um, even talking to the local coastal community stakeholders, um, or the people we work with, they also said that um, the older ones, of course, that it is getting worse. They have seen the, the tides and the floodings become more, become more frequent. And for them, um, especially in Caracol and other areas where we work, there are a lot of salt pans. So when something like this happens in particular, it tends to ruin the, the harvest of the salt because the water gets back into the salt pans, which we're starting to, to you know, separate out, um, the salt will start to crystallize out and it melts them back again and you have to wait another three months. So that affects income in the entire area when things like that happen. Uh, coral bleaching, of course, has increased as well. Destruction of the corals, uh, of course, normally and always affects the fisheries in the area. Um, increased storms, uh, we're getting more and more hurricanes. Uh, and being located in Hurricane Alley, it's particularly bad for countries like Haiti and can be particularly devastating, not only more storms, but stronger storms. Um, I mean, in, in, a, in a country that's as fragile as Haiti, I think that's enough already right there. Just two or three um, bad climate-related events are enough to really cause significant damage. Um, the flooding uh, from tropical storms, um, the sediment washing down the, the, the watersheds into the ocean, uh, destroying, uh, covering, smothering reefs, um, all of that type of thing, all of that affects uh, local, income, uh, local income revenue, um, the, the, especially in the Northeast and other places in the country, 
uh, farmers don't know exactly when to plant anymore because the, the weather patterns have changed. It used to rain a lot during, of course, rainy season and then have a dry season now. Sometimes they can put their crops in, hoping rainy season is going to start. It may or may not. And then often these days, when it does, it's a gigantic storm and it wipes out the, their crops from the very beginning. So it doesn't take much to have a serious economic impact on a country that's so fragile already. Absolutely. And it can be quite devastating. Do you think it's, is it lending a sense of urgency at all to, to the to work and saying, hey, you know, what you're doing at full program is, is really critical and we need to double down? Um, in, in, in part, yes. Um, but we are, again, less than a drop in the bucket of what needs to be done. Um, again, countries like Haiti, uh, in terms of, of causing climate change, are not even on the radar. Uh, but we are the countries that are going to be the most heavily impacted by climate change. Um, so there's not much that we can do to, to, to uh, stop or mitigate climate change. Um, we can try to manage it, uh, manage the impacts, but we really don't have much that we can do to, to stop it. And again, activities such as uh, reforestation activities and of both mangroves and in upper watersheds with other types of trees um, are critically important because we're losing all of our topsoil, we're losing our, losing our farmland, Whenever there's a big flood, people die in, in, in you know, storm surges. And it's just really a mess. And, and we are, as far as climate change, again, as far as climate change is, is uh, impacts go, you know, we're really not involved in, in causing much or any of it. Completely agree. And I think, that's a really challenging part that where I'm sitting, actually, and where, where the both of us are sitting, we're sitting in the US is one of the leading, as a country, is one of the leading sources of emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, obviously contributing to, to climate change. And obviously, to see, to acknowledge that there's a connection of that countries like the US and others are having indirectly these impacts on storm surges in Haiti. Mm -hmm. So do you see your role evolving uh, as saying, engaging with, in some ways, engaging with communities or legislators or government officials or ministers in the US or in Canada could have a direct impact on, on the livelihoods of some of these communities that you're working with in, in Haiti? Is, have you, is that something that's evolved much or have you focused on? Um, not directly, but through various activities, through our funding sources and, and all. Uh, yes, we're trying to push that message across through the, um, as well, that we are you know, probably the least, the smallest impactor, but the most impacted uh, to you know, people in all of these, the, the big international agencies that we work with. Um, again, we try to push that message up through uh, the Haitian government's levels and the Haitian government, of course, ministries of ministers and ministries, agriculture, environment, tourism, and all are 
well aware of, of the impacts that it's going to have on the country. So their role, of course, would be to, to try to engage other governments in trying to monitor and manage their outputs, um, because again, we're the ones who are going to suffer the most. Yeah, and it makes sense that there's only so many things you can do. <laughs> so staying focused on your current yeah. work makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Um, what are your what what do you what are your goals for the next five to ten years? What do you what would you really like to see happen? Well, we've got some we've got a few big projects coming up, um, and um, it's going to be uh, trying to really keep the momentum going and trying to grow um, many of the activities that we've already started and already have gotten going. Um, our biggest issue, of course, is to keep the funding coming because a lot of the funding is one year or two years, and that's not enough to make a change. And it's certainly not enough to make a, a long lasting change. So a lot of the activities which we're undertaking is trying to just continue to keep the activities which we started going and trying to um, replicate them, upscale them, and we think that through that, we'll be able to continue to have a larger and bigger, much bigger impact, um, not only in the areas where we're working now, but hopefully in other areas throughout the country as well. Um, it's really a question of keeping that momentum going. I can imagine that having only one to two year runways on the funding does present some at least strategic challenges in terms of yeah. being able to have a long-term investment in one project that will take time to develop and become scalable. Right. No, absolutely. It's it's probably our biggest issue is being able to keep the momentum going, keeping the funding coming so that we, we don't lose the momentum. Because um, once you do lose the momentum, things start to fall back to the way they were. And you, you know, you have to start all over. You've lost all of your investment. You've lost your funds. You've lost your time. You've you've lost the interest of the, the people you're trying to help as well. So on, on for those that are listening, if they're interested in learning more, or becoming more involved in, in resource preservation, what would you suggest from a zero waste impact, let's say, what are some things or steps that they can do to either support an organization such as yourselves or take on individually to to do something about this um a lot of it is is trying to get more involved in in what's going on not you know in your neighborhoods as well um we nobody lives in a vacuum anymore everything that everybody does impacts everybody else uh, as we just discussed the issue of the the uh, outputs um causing climate change from from countries thousands of miles away uh it's that's a big issue um a lot of countries are are heavily impacted by this and those types of issues cause all types of strife around the world um in haiti for example right now we're going through political issues but um losses of crops losses of income are also going to push people to seek um, other and better places to live. And that's going to cause all types of, of strife throughout the world. Um, so we really need to get our act together 
or else we're going to see a lot more in terms of conflict around the world um, related to climate change impacts in particular. People looking to capture resources, um, whether it be a river or you know, um, fertile farmland or something, um, those types of conflicts are going to increase as the pressures on the resources and the climate changes and your, you know, your river dries up or your farmland goes foul, you're going to have to look for somewhere else to go. And that's going to cause many, many more issues. So get involved. Um, don't think that, you know, what you're doing in your little corner of the world doesn't have a global impact because it does. Great, I, I really appreciate that. Um, it's really empowering to see, okay, we can, these things make a difference uh, and it's important to do. So Jean, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, if someone wants to learn more about your particular organization, is there, how, how best they, can they do that or learn about that? Is there a website or? Yep. Sure, of course. If you want to learn more, you can go to www.foprobim.org, foprobim.org, and take a look at what we're doing. Um, you know, we're all over different places in the internet as well. And uh, we're based in Haiti and trying to do the best we can with Haitians, for Haitians. And uh, yeah, we've still got <laughs> We've still got a lot of work to do. So yeah, I appreciate the opportunity, Shane. Thank you, yeah. I have a, a lot of work to do, but a lot of work has been done. So that's obviously really inspiring. We're working on it. <laughs> <laughs>
a goal now is to uh, get some pots so we can pot them and add some some soil and fertilizer because uh, they're currently still in their their plastic containers. Um, but that was exciting, so I went to a local nursery and bought them. Uh, and then number two, uh, did a little bit of uh, in work uh, investigating the, the state of plastics in my local city uh, based on the great guide that uh, Diana Cohen and the Plastic Pollution Co Coalition have put together. They basically put together a few steps, basically a seven-step process where they help you understand, become more informed about how to eliminate plastics or ban plastics, whether it's single-use plastics or styrofoam um, from a particular city. So the first few steps are really uh, becoming more informed. Uh, they provide lots of resources. It's also building a local movement, uh, getting citizens on board, connecting with others, really forming community, uh, learning from previous successful ordinances. So they provide a wealth of resources that from other cities or counties that are doing that. And then once you really start getting a sense of how this can actually be done or how this has been successfully implemented elsewhere, then it's a matter of local uh, contacting local businesses and local representatives to start that conversation. So that was very cool. Uh, I enjoyed the process uh, with which they set that up. And very excitingly, um, I did a little bit of uh, research into my own city and a ban of single-use plastics has already uh, been implemented. So this happened about two and a half years ago, early 2020. So the city council uh, worked very closely um, with a few local organizations, um, in particular, some, some organizations that are concerned about plastic plastics entering our, our oceans. Um, and we are on a coastal uh, um, city. Uh, and so there was a lot of effort to essentially in early in the spring of 2020 to pass an ordinance um, under the city's municipal code to prohibit uh, a number of single-use plastics. Um, this includes anything from polystyrenes for uh, single-use uh, foodware plastics, uh, a lot of uh, food trays, plastic food trays, um, single-use plastic packaging, um, things like straws, plastic forks, plastic spoons, um, and instead can use uh, whether it's metal or uh, wood-based uh, products. Um, also, the city agreed to min uh, eliminate the use of bat plastic bottles um, at city events. So in instead of that, we, uh, they would have either me metallic bottles or refillable water stations available. And then the use of a lot of uh, egg carton and food trays uh, for food service wear. So rather than having styrofoams or plastics, you can use um, carton uh food service where that is, is, is made by plastic. So very excited to see that's already happening in this city. And um, now uh, if you're interested, uh, you have kind of a, a resource to, to find and, and see how, how that can be implemented in your local jurisdiction. So that was a bit of a uh, lengthy update, but those are the two things that I've been working on. And uh, for the next week, hope you uh, have a good week and enjoy your local green space, a local park, uh, and, and enjoy everything that it has to offer. So. Thank you very much and have a good rest of the week.